we're going to pray and we're going to spend some time in God's word and then we're going to pray for lunch and then we're going to eat together and hopefully you're going to stick around for that um, and, uh, and hear about what the Zambia team is doing. Um, my, here's my public service announcement. You will see that there are cones uh, on the lawn over there and there's like caution tape back there. Um, it is a bit of a mess outside, although it's a better mess than we had before we started the workday yesterday. Um, so just, just be careful and uh, particularly uh, mind your kids if you've got any. And uh, that is not new playground equipment. It is, um, it, yeah. So um, we're going to read in Romans chapter 7 and then we will pray. So Romans chapter 7 verse 1 says this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. Or death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and I believe that that for many, including myself, there are distinct times and stages of life and patterns and behaviors and different things that that we can spot in our own lives and say, Romans 7 is true of me. I understand what is being said there. I feel the conflict. I see the difficulty. And so, Father, I pray that you would help as we explore your word this morning. I pray that you would help me as I communicate, not to fall into extremes, and I pray for those who listen that they would be protected as well. We ask that you would help us to avoid hearing that sin is wired into our fallen nature and is therefore out of our responsibility and okay because that is not true. And we pray that you would help us to not set such incredibly high performance standards for ourselves that when we discover the presence of sin or we fight a spiritual battle or we come before you in confession, that we would despair and feel like we can never ever do anything right as believers. Father, we pray for great confidence in what you can do in us through Christ and for great humility with regard to our own ability to do what is good. But building on the foundation of Romans 1 through 6, Lord, we want to enjoy and love and be excited about the fact that you love us, that you are for us, that you support us, that you redeem us and justify us and forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and set us in the world to do your will. And so we pray that you would teach us to battle sin and to acknowledge our nature and to live and walk in the gospel truth of the fact that you are always smiling at us because we are in Christ. This is a difficult task. And so we pray that you would protect and keep us 
from the many ways in which we could go wrong, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, I have, uh, to be honest, uh, judged, okay, and not really ever understood um, zombie culture in our culture. Uh, there, are, there are people who love zombies and this kind of horror kind of, uh, of I've never, I've, I've, I've watched, I think, the first, like, 15 minutes of this show, The Walking Dead, and I started to hear, like, the squishy noises, and I was like, that's it, I'm out, I'm done, I, I can't. And, and so people will say things on Facebook, like, oh, this is the latest episode of The Walking Dead, and I'm, like, judged, like, you know, because I'm not into that. But then as I was thinking about, about zombies, the idea that, that, that there is this uh, life after death that, 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 that is this shambling kind of limping along, consuming, destroying thing, right, the zombie, I, I, I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I am into that a little bit. I thought back to a couple of years ago when the, the game craze was plants versus zombies, which like dominated my life for about nine months. Like it was like all, I, I just, you know, if I'm not working and I'm not parenting, like I'm playing plants versus zombies because I gotta, I gotta, I gotta set up my army. You'd have a plant army here on one side, you know, and and, and you would set up your defenses, and then the zombies would come marching, and if your defenses were good and well-organized, and you managed your resources well, then you could defeat all the zombies that would come across the screen. And it was, it was like I was hooked into this thing. You know? But the zombies were coming, and if they, if they overran your territory, then they would eat your brain. Right? <laughs> um, so so I, I understood that, and I'm like, okay, 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 I've been there. Like, I've, I've, been, I've been part of this in some... Uh, some way. Um, zombies chase and scare, and you have to run for your life, but there is this unrelenting feeling that they are always pursuing you because they never ta- stop. Their appetite is never satisfied. They are always on the hunt, and they move quietly. So when I think about Romans 7 and the believer, the believer who hears the gospel and who receives the message of the truth about Jesus Christ acknowledges this, that they come to God having failed. Uh, They come to God with a need for righteousness, having lost it through their own actions, having Uh, been born into a a sinful family, and by sinful family I mean the entire human race, they they are guilty of sinning against God. We're born in Adam and we walk away, our appetite is uh, is for things which are not of God from birth, And, and so we come to Christ and we say, God forgive me, Send my sins away. Give me righteousness. And we understand that is the basic arrangement of how the gospel works, right? Okay. How does the gospel work? How, how, is, how is righteousness applied to us? We see it in the Old Testament that somebody would bring a sacrifice and they would, they would bring it to the priest and the priest would lay it on the altar and the priest would kill the sacrifice, symbolically punishing the sacrifice and the blood of the sacrifice would be shed and the one who brought the sacrifice would be able to walk away saying, my sins are covered and dealt with. That was God's arrangement. 
And so the believer comes to God and says, forgive me, and then commits to walk in a new way, right? We come to God and we acknowledge that all his commandments are good and holy and, and righteous. He says, stop doing this stuff. And we say, okay, God, I'm going I'm to do that. And then he says, and if you're not doing this, start doing this stuff. We say, okay, I'll do that. Then we have this feeling many times that we're being chased, don't we? That we're being chased by our own nature. That our own sinfulness gets in the way. That, that we're, we're talking to someone, right? We're reacting. My kids can testify they've been on the receiving end of this. My wife as well. Probably some others. You've graciously forgiven me, hopefully. That I'm saying something that my, my flesh is acting, right? That I'm saying or doing or thinking, and at the same time, there's a piece of me saying, this is not the way that Christians react and behave, right? The, the, the flesh is, is rolling in a direction. Sin is active and alive, and there's a piece of me in my conscience saying, stop, stop, hit the brake, and it's like, why is it not stopping? And maybe I'm completely and utterly alien to you right now, and you're like, I've never had that experience, but I, I don't think that's true. It's right there in Romans 7. We have this experience as believers that though we are alive, that thing which is dead in us is still chasing us. The zombie is still alive, and it's coming after us. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that believers sin? How do we deal with the fact that we still struggle with sin? There are people who walk with Christ for 30 and 40 and 50 years, and I've often asked them, like, what's your sense of who you are now in Christ? And the right answer, the good answer, this is what I think is theologically good and true, and many people have said this to me as they say, I have so much more respect and appreciation and gratitude and value for what Christ has done for me because my sense of my own sinfulness and failure and how far short I fall has grown over the years. They are still joyous. And they are completely and utterly unconvinced of their own perfection. So how do we, how do we deal with the zombie? A number of years ago, I, um, I found this app. You know me, I'm obsessed with apps. And uh, I found this app because I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn, you know, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to get out, I'm going to get mobile and do some stuff. And I found this, this app that was like, the longer you walked, you could trade in like steps for a piece of a story. There's like a mystery, right? And, and so I downloaded and I was listening to it. What was weird is like, you got to constantly fidget with your phone while you're walking. And I'm like, I'm going to get hit by a car or something. So, uh, <laughs> but then in my suggested application shows up this other app called Z Run Zombies Attack. Right? And here's what it is. It's the same thing as the other, the other app where, where the more steps you take, uh, you unlock pieces of the story. But this was the, this was the twist. Occasionally, the, apps would, the app would just say, there'd be music, there'd be story, and then it would say, the zombies are attacking, run. And you'd, you'd like, ah. And I'm like, no way, I can't do this. This is not, this is not good for me. I, I can't. I can't. I'm like too. I'm too anxious and nervous, and I can't be seen in the neighborhood. Like, ah, you know, like, 
running around. Everyone would think I'm nuts. So I, th I thought, man, this should catch on. Like, because it, it's all going on right here. You know, it'd be amazing to watch people use this thing. Um, I don't know if you can get it on the App Store or not. Uh, use at your own risk, okay? Don't get hurt. And if you do get hurt, don't blame me. Paul, Paul is talking here about though he is forgiven and though he is in Christ and though he is justified and now he understands how, how the law works and he understands who he is in Christ and he understands how he's supposed to uh, engage and embrace what God is doing to him in the present. He acknowledges that there is still an ongoing and persistent problem with sin. Christians need to understand and address this, okay? Because sin, it happens. It's out there. You, you cannot be involved in a, a, a meaningful, long-term relationship, any kind of interaction with another human being without sin getting in the way. You have to learn how to deal with it. And if they're not the ones sinning against you, then it was you against them at some point. We need to learn how to battle if perfection is not possible in this life. Paul is going to go back to an idea that he introduced in, in chapter 6. The idea that we are to consider and to reckon, consider or reckon, same thing, certain ideas as true because of our faith in Christ and because of what is written in the scriptures. Our entire faith is built on promises given to us by God and statements made about God by God, okay? That is what we have in the scriptures. Now, Paul is going to use an illustration here when he's speaking about sin and the, the way that sin works. So we were slaves of sin once. We were enslaved to sin but we died with Christ. That's what Romans 6 says. And we've been raised to walk in newness of life. And we are no longer slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to righteousness because we've been raised. So how then do we break free of sin and embrace the good works that God wants us to do and to live consistently. Paul is going to keep building on this idea that we need to consider or reckon. And so this is what he says. He uses an illustration here and he speaks about marriage and he says, this is the way that the law works. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. And the commitment that is made at the wedding ceremony, if you're using traditional vows and not something you got off a greeting card, you know, is, is uh, I've never been much of a fan of writing your own vows. They need, they need to be good. Um, they, need to be, they need to be solid, you know, and so I want to see solid vows involved in a wedding ceremony. You're bound till death do us part. That's what he says. So the follow-through here is that if this uh, example woman, if her husband dies, she's released from the law of, the ma of marriage because that is how the commitment expires. The commitment ends. Accordingly, he says, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Okay? 
an illustration, bound by law and commitment, released at death. There is a legal tie, there is an understanding in the law that keeps them bound and together. And those are the terms and conditions that Paul lays out. So he moves from this illustration to this connection to our struggle with sin then. He says that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. We are born into a need to obey the law, born under the terms of the law of God. Right? When Adam was created, he was told, obey and you will live. Do this and you will live. These are the conditions. I've given you all this food to eat and I have fenced off or marked off something for myself. There is a boundary here. This is not for you. Obey this boundary. And Eve and the serpent came up with this bad idea and Adam is standing there. Thank you so much. And he ate and everything in the world changed. Why? Because of disobedience. The penalties of breaking the law fell on Adam and all of his children, and we are all born with a nature that, that, that works against the law, and we commit acts uh, which, which break God's law throughout our life. We are dead in our sins and trespasses with respect to God. We are dead to him, but we are very much alive to the need to obey the law when we are born. Now, this is what Paul is going to teach us about union with Christ. Such an important idea for us. It is not enough to say that, that Jesus is, is over there and that, and that he is my sacrifice for me and that he pays the penalty for my sins and then I'm forgiven. It is important that we understand that, that, that we are one with Christ, that we are made part of him, that he is in us, as he says in the Gospel of John, he is in us, and we are in him, and he is in God, the Father. It's important to understand, not to see Jesus as far off, but to see him as close to us, okay? This is what he, what he says here, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Union with Christ, and that's what we're talking about in Romans 6 and 7, means that when Christ died on the cross, that spiritually speaking, we were there with him, and we died as well. Our sinful nature, not the greatest expression, that's what shows up in the NIV, in the, in the uh, ESV, and in a whole bunch of other translations, it's just one word, our flesh, who we are by our, by our birth nature in this world, was there with him and died with Jesus on the cross. When he came and was baptized, he identified with sinful humanity. He took on a body of flesh, right? He didn't, he didn't take on sinful flesh. He was made like flesh, right? And Hebrews says, yet without sin. And so he identifies with us, and we identify with him in baptism. He goes to the cross and dies a physical death, the punishment that we should take upon ourselves for our sins, and spiritually, we are there with him. Jesus went to the cross 
because of the law, but not because he violated it, because we violate it. And this means that when he died and we died with him, he died because of the law, we died to the law. Adam was born to obey, okay? We were born in Adam. He died when he sinned. He died to righteousness and died to the ability to please God. And he could no longer do things the way that he ought. And we have all been born infected with that condition. Dead to righteousness and alive for sin. In this section, a good way to express it would be that we are earning fruit for death. That that is what we harvest. But Paul says here that we died to the law that we might bear fruit for God. We're reborn in Christ. There is a, there is a, a leadership change that takes place in our life. Okay? Uh, I, have, I have this light over here, right? Um, and I'm standing under that light right now. It's like I'm in Adam. Okay? This is, this is my my zone or my sphere. I was born in Adam and the, the penalty of, of sins is coming at me and the judgment of God and his wrath and all of these things because Adam is my representative. I was born in him. He's my, my dad spiritually. Does that make sense? Right? The Bible says in the book of Colossians that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness under the, the reign of, of Satan, living according to the, to the passions of our flesh and the darkness of our mind, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now I'm over here. I'm not part of that anymore. Now I'm in the kingdom of his beloved son. I'm in the, in the kingdom of, of Christ. We'll see in the next chapters where Paul is going to set up a whole bunch of contrasts between being in Adam and being in Christ. How, how do we make the transfer? Jesus makes it possible for us to move from one kingdom to the other because you don't get out of here alive. Someone has to die for your sins. He dies and and makes it possible for us to enter. When he died, we died with him. And that spiritual principle that keeps us dead and locked into our sins died. Paul says here that what's going on throughout our life is that because we have this flesh, this fallenness in us, when the law is preached to us, when we hear God's law, whether it's from God's word or we discover it out in the world, you know, in in good principles and right things, which we should do, our sinful passion is aroused against it. You say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey that. Who's that pastor to tell me how I'm supposed to live, you know? I'm not going to do what my mom says, you know? She doesn't know what she's talking about, you know? Like, we, we naturally reject the law. Now, this doesn't mean every single minute of every sin, single interaction that we have with anything good is like, you know? But we make this arrangement where we say, I am, I'm going to obey this and not obey that. I'm going to do what is right. How does the Bible put it? In my own eyes. Our sinful passions are sparked to life by the law, provoked by the law. But Paul says, 
now we are released from the law, having died to it. So that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In the old way, over here in Adam, this is the way that, that life works. Leviticus 18.5 says, do this and you will live. Obey all the commands of God. Right? Actively do everything the law says to do and don't ever do anything it says not to do. And if you break that, you know what the result is? Death. Right? That's being judged according to works. To our works. But in Christ, we are saved not by our own works, but by his works. And all the good that he has done, every time that he refused to do wrong, every time that, that he had the perfect attitude about what his father commanded him, every time that, that he thought in his spirit, this is not what I would prefer to do, but I will do my father's will, all of that is given to us and counted to us in Christ. And so we are completely and utterly righteous in Christ. And so, do this and you will live is over there. Now, we live under, do this because you live. Now, we live under an interpretation of the law that Paul's going to present in Romans 13, where he says, all those laws and all those commandments, you know what they're there to illustrate? These two ideas. That you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Over there, you had to fulfill the law perfectly. Over here, had to fill the law perfectly, or what? Death and judgment. Over here, in Romans 13, Paul is going to say, the one who has loved has fulfilled the law. That's amazing. We're, we're in a new way of, of interacting with the law. Now, last week, near the end of my sermon, I was like, crushed and you know like I had to get done and I was like trying to put stuff in and like just get it get it get it get it get it finished you know get it get out of here and so I, I talked about the tightrope analogy that that I had presented to uh, to one of my professors right how how walking the the law is like walking on a rope right you know how how we we might feel like man I need to I need to perfectly inch myself forward, you know, if I break a command or fail to do something, that's it, right? By the way, uh, James says that if we break the law in one point, we're guilty of breaking the whole thing, right? That, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we view the law kind of like as a salad bar buffet of morality, like, oh, over here is the way that we handle other people, and over here is the way that we handle morality. I'm trying not to fall over. I'm still on the tightrope. Um, you know, like, like if we view morality as a salad bar, you know, it's like if, if you if you take a little out of this container, you know, you're not really messed with everything. The whole thing's intact, right? But if you're walking on a tightrope and you cut it like six feet ahead of you, or you cut it like an inch right ahead of you, right? The whole rope is broken. One point broken the whole thing. So I, I, went to my, uh, I went to my professor, and I was like, I feel like I'm walking this tightrope when it comes to holiness and accepting my identity of who I am in Christ and like, like living up to the, 
the, the standard that's been set. Like, I don't know how to seek some balance. And so I said, so this, is what I, this is what I think. Like, I am called to walk in holiness. That's, that's what God requires of me, to walk in holiness. But then there underneath is the net, which is Jesus. The gospel, which is there to catch me when I fall. And, and he said to me, um, yeah, okay. But how about the rope is on the ground? And I was like, oh. And I said that, and then I moved on, and, and a couple people were like, what do you mean on the ground? Like, actually, they weren't like, what do you mean on the ground? They were more like, what do you mean on the ground? Like, talk more about that. And so, now here I am. Uh, let's talk more about it. Sorry, I didn't mean to like, anyway. Um, I'm excited about talking about this. This is exciting. Um, so so here's, here's the idea. The law changes from being this risky, death-inducing, right, uh, uh, bone-breaking, life-ending, daredevil act that we're called to live, and instead just becomes a path. The rope is here, and it just goes that way. And Paul will say in Romans 13 that the law says, love your neighbor. Love God. And so here, I could, I could be like, I gotta, I gotta walk on top of this thing, like I need to balance, I'm so, I'm nervous. No, it's like, just kind of go that way. Go that way, right? Walk away from all this stuff that's back here. Turn, turn from, from sin and turn towards God. Like in Romans, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, that he's heard it reported far and wide how the Thessalonians turned away from idols and turned to serve a living God. That's repentance right there. I turn away from what doesn't please God. I turn toward what pleases him. And I say, thank you that you have forgiven me. Thank you that you've canceled out my sin. Thank you that you've released me from this impossible task and you called me to walk in your will. The one who is alive in Christ is dead to the law and the death brought by the law. The law has a new purpose in our lives to show us what love is. And so then Paul is going gonna, is gonna to respond. Uh, let me teach you some, some fancy Bible interpretation here, okay? There is a, there is a thing that shows up in, in Bible scholarship about Paul, okay? And it's called the hidden interlocutor. Okay, you love that? An interlocutor is someone who asks questions, right? And, and so... What, what happens is, this is what I, the way that I believe it happens, is Paul will ask these questions. He'll say, what will we say then? That the law is sin, right? You know why he does that? Because when Paul was preaching this, right, you guys are so respectful and kind and good. Like, you will email me or walk up to me later and you'll say, tell me more about the tightrope. When Paul was preaching, you know what they would say? They would shout out at him. What are you talking about? Are you saying, are you saying the law is sin? Right? Paul probably heard this question dozens and dozens of times as he was preaching. And so as a good communicator, he asks and answers his own questions. Right? You know, the things that they're going to object to. So, so wait a minute. Over here, you're saying that the law arouses my passions and makes me sin? That sounds pretty bad. That sounds like the law, then, is what's making me sin. It's the law's fault. Right? Not mine. So Paul... 
lets the hidden guy ask the question and then he answers it, right? So here's Paul over here. Imagine Paul, a little puppet of a guy, you know, and Paul's preaching and the guy's like, oh, it's always the law of sin. He's like, great question. Let me answer that. So because, because we're thinking it, his answer is this, by no means. But if the law wasn't there, we would have never known that we were sinners. Think about that. We were created for union with God. And in order for union with God to really exist, for fellowship with God to happen, there has to be an arrangement that informs the creature that they are the creature and he is the creator. This is the standard that you must obey. Think about the way that our will and our mind work. God says, here's one commandment. How long did they last? Right? Some, some people think that Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were like living and, you know, making fruit smoothies and stuff for like a month. You know, there are other scholars, and I think these are questions that don't really need debate. There are other scholars who say that, that it was like the same day that they were created, that the whole world fell. We don't, we don't know, but man, our nature as fallen in Adam creatures is to find standards and push against them. To say, I am not going to obey. Have you ever seen that little sticker in the side of your window that says, bring it back within 3,000 miles? You're like, are you kidding? I ain't spending $25 on this oil change every other month. You know, I'm going to push it 4,500 miles, you know, like two months after the, the time, you know, and then all of a sudden you're by the side of the road and your car's empty and it's got no oil in it and the engine's on fire and you're like, I should have obeyed, you know. <laughs> Is the law sin? No. If the law doesn't exist, then we won't know what sin is. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, Paul says. But, but hearing, you shall not covet, sin that is alive and active within us grabs onto that opportunity to reject the lordship of God, and it begins to produce inside all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, Paul says, sin lies dead. When the commandment comes, sin comes alive, and then we die. And he's talking here not about being dead in Adam, but about sinful actions that bring guilt upon ourselves. The very commandment that promised life. There are some of you, in conversations we talk, you got everything kind of in order, and you are on it as far as your life goes. And you, you, you're organized, you've got plans, and you bring it over here into the spiritual realm. And you're like, oh, man, I just want to be perfect before God. It's a good desire. But then you start to try to manage it. And when you fail, it just destroys you that you can't be perfect. Your nature is working against you. The law promises life. You can't execute that because you're fallen. We're all fallen. 
The law is not weak. The book of Hebrews says that the law is weak through the flesh. The people that are trying to live up to it can't do it because we are fallen. And so it says here, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And so he says here, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's an extreme that we can engage as Christians. We can say, all we have to do is love one another. Well, the law is gone. You know, it's, it's, we just throw it away, you know, to which I say, well, you know, most of you haven't really cut all those pages out of the Old Testament. Probably have some respect for the commands of God, right? They're serious. They mean something. We're to take them seriously and to, and to say, I seek to obey these. But we're to, we're to filter them through our knowledge of who God is and what Christ is trying to accomplish and to say, how is this specific commandment, how does it demonstrate either love for God or love for my neighbor? And then let me figure it out. You know, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that we need to put up orange cones and caution tape. Okay? So we could have just kind of not done it said, well, you know, there's no command in the Bible. But the Bible does say that when you build a house, you're supposed to put a fence around the top of it because people would go up onto the top of the house and they'd do all kinds of things up there. They'd, they'd uh, roll out grain, they would dry their, their laundry, they would collect rainwater, and so they built steps on the side of their house and they're supposed to build a fence around the top. Why? So that somebody doesn't fall off. If there's a fence and somebody falls off your house in the Old Testament, you're not guilty. But if there is no fence and somebody falls off, you are guilty. What does that law have to do with Christians today? Well, you know, we don't build fences around our house. We don't build ladders on the sides of our house. But every Christian should say, like, man, maybe before I go in for lunch, I ought to disconnect this power tool, right? You know, or I ought to put up some caution tape and caution people. That's a loving, kind thing to do. You know what I mean? The law, the law, even though it's fixed at a point in a particular culture, still can teach us about what it means to be loving today. The law is good. Paul says it's holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we see all those rules and laws. We shouldn't say, cut that out and throw it away. We should say, that's good. Paul then asks another question. Did that which is good bring death to me? You know what he's really saying here? Did the law bring death? Does God bring death? That's what he's asking. The law is God's idea. It's God's invention. Is God the one who's saying, here's an impossible standard you can never live up to, and he is killing us? Paul says, no, it's not God. It's what's within us. The law is a spiritual thing which is to be kept by spiritual people. And when we are dead spiritually, the law then becomes that which destroys us because it exposes our failure. It exposes our inability to keep it. And then Paul says, the law is spiritual, but he is under the flesh, sold, owned by sin. And then he begins to discuss his own internal conflict. I do not understand my own actions, he says. I look to the law and I say it's good and holy, and then I see that I can't live up to it. I do not do what I want, but I do the thing that I hate. He finds himself making excuses for his behavior and allowing himself to sin against it. Come on, we've done this, haven't we? 
man, no one should ever do that, we say, when we see somebody. That right there, that's the worst kind of human. I try to avoid saying that kind of stuff because I realize when I say that, my flesh is a way of like moving me on the other side of that line eventually. You never talk about anybody behind their back, right? It's the worst. People who do that, then all of a sudden I'm talking with somebody and I'm like, <gasps> I'm talking behind my back, behind their back. The uh, theologian Francis Schaeffer used to say, now this is a, a dated analogy, but he said that, that if God had fitted every single human being with a cassette recorder that only went on and recorded when they made a moral judgment about other people, and then also recorded when they broke that judgment, he said there'd be enough to condemn every single person in humanity. It's a principle. We believe in righteousness and holiness, and yet we make excuses for ourselves, right? There's that meme that's going around. If you've ever seen it, it's like, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry, you know? I'm sorry for what I said when I was this or that. You know, we make excuses and we say, oh, I was tired, and that's why I broke all these rules and sinned. But when somebody else breaks them, why do they break them? Because they're rotten, right? Because they're wrong. I can at least understand why I break the rules. That person, no. No, no justification for their behavior. Paul says, I don't do what I want. I do the thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. What he's saying is, is over here, he's, he's saying, I don't, I don't want to do this thing. Like, I want to live right, but I find myself doing what's wrong. And he says, when I do that, I agree that the law is good. I shouldn't be acting this way. And so he says, this is a positive thing. We find ourselves acting on sinful motives and thoughts. We reject them, and yet we do them. We want to do, be good, but we do wrong. Why is this? Because we are living in the flesh, and we are not yet complete. We are not yet who we are to be when Jesus appears. Our bodies have not been made new. Though the Spirit lives within us, there is still this principle of wrong that lives with us. We live with the zombie. It's there. And we need to guard against it and run away from it. Paul doesn't call it a zombie. He calls it sin, in verse 17, dwelling within me. And this is a principle that we need to be very careful in its application because what I don't want you to hear is that you are rotten and horrible and bad all the time because that is not what Paul is saying here. What he says is, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Apart from Christ... I have no ability or power to do what is good. I cannot keep the law. I need God in me. I need the power of the Spirit in order to help me do what is right consistently. This doesn't mean that there's no good motive in people, that all people are all horrible all the time. I meet some pretty nice non-Christians. I met some... Pretty mean Christians. So have you, probably, right? What Paul is talking about here is our ability to do good, that that motive power, the engine that drives us, is not there when, when we are in the flesh. 
We have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry out. And then he says, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Like I keep, I keep failing and falling into this pattern. But then he says, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is important, folks. Let me... Let me share this principle of how we relate to one another as believers. And then I want to refocus this and and land where Paul lands. Christians need to recover a large doctrine of sin. Okay? Many churches have stowed sin language and they no longer talk about repentance they no longer talk about sin as against the will of god they they talk about how people have mistakes they talk about hang-ups they talk about accidents or you know like people have issues instead of you know people break the law of god right and that is not good the proper response to that though is not to reduce all sin to one doctrine and say people sin because they're not on the right team because they're bad and we're good, okay? That's a mistake. There is an entire category of sin which is wrong actions. God tells us not to do it and we shouldn't do it. And then there are right behaviors that we fail to, to do, right? That those, are, those are sins of omission and sins of commission. And they are, they are wrong. But all sin is not just, hey, They chose to do a bad thing, okay? Some of it is that we are fallen and indwelled with sin and and therefore there is a kind of battle that we engage on a regular basis that sin is tragedy. Sin is an indwelling corruption that is there slowly, relentlessly undermining the good intentions that we put into practice or that we seek to act upon. Sin is there infecting and and ruining things. Have you ever had a perfect moment with somebody, like a perfect interaction? Everything is going well, and then all of a sudden you say or do something that just destroys it. No? Am I the only one? You're like, what in the world just happened? How did that happen? It was, it was so good, and then bang. Because sin is always there. It's there with us, chasing us. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our behavior, but it does mean that we ought to look to one another in the church and outside of the church. And when they say, you know what? I'm sorry for the way that I acted. And they're not making excuses for their behavior. They're just saying I was wrong. We had to show them great compassion and understand instead of saying, like, you tell me why you did that or you, you show me how you're going to cancel that sin out or I'm never going to forgive you because, you know what, we've done the exact same thing, haven't we? We have messed up. We're not exactly sure why we've messed up. It's important that in marriage and work life and in parenting and in church leadership and in tearing down buildings together and in setting up for potlucks and in going on missions trips and in all these things that we understand the doctrine of indwelling sin that it's there and that it's present and that sometimes the zombie catches up with us and acts out 
And it's not just that person's dumb and that's why they did it. Right? And if we just could shun them and get them out of our church, then maybe our church would be better. Right? Maybe everything would be perfect. Paul says that he acknowledges that in him dwells no good thing and that he is constantly struggling with this. What ought the Christian's response be towards themselves? Great humility with regard to all of their actions. Somebody comes to you and says, you offended me when you did this. You know what we say? Tell me a little more. I don't, okay, help me. Help me understand. And then maybe we say, I'm sorry, right? Paul doesn't stay here though. He says this, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And so, so always be careful about this, that when things are going well, when we're doing well, we still need to remain humble and careful. We're not, we're not like, you know, I've, I've got 75% of my life under control and I need God for this 25%. Proverbs says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's not just something we memorize in Sunday school, right? And then we leave it there. This, this threads through the entire Christian life. Evil lies close at hand. So great humility. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so he comes to this point where he says, wretched man that I am. Great humility towards himself and his own ability to do good and satisfy the demands of God's law for his entire life whether it's leading up to his conversion or after his conversion, great humility. But then this is what he says. He turns his mind to being saved. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this problem, he says. End of sermon, right? Let's pray and eat lunch. No, this is what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, important things as we, as we close down here. We can't turn down our delight in the standard of God's law. We can't say, I will solve the problem of my own sin by eliminating the law and saying, I'm good, it doesn't matter what I do. God's happy with me and satisfied with me and my behaviors and actions don't matter. I just... End of the day, I'll kneel down by the bed and I'll say, Lord, I know I did 73 things wrong today, and I know you're cool with it, right? Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Right? Like the gospel is like soap, and I just like kind of, and I'm good. We ought to delight in God's law. We ought not to to cease to want to do good and to do the things that God calls us to do even though we are not as perfect as we want to be. We need to engage the war in our being and war against our sins and not make peace with them. But the key is to consistently and constantly look beyond ourself and remember it is not our perfect performance that saves us. And so we maintain a high standard with regard to the law, but we consistently and constantly look to Christ and say, thanks be to God that he delivers me through Christ. And we're going to come back and we're going to do Romans 8 
And this is where we start to get answers about how to be empowered and how to have victory in the Spirit. But let's have great humility towards ourselves and great confidence in Jesus' ability to deliver us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I pray that if there's anyone in the room who is hearing the gospel as if for the first time, the good news that, that you don't judge us according to the standard in Christ, that, that Christ takes our punishment and we receive his righteousness. If there's anyone who's understanding this for the first time, Lord, I pray that they would look to you and cry out for deliverance and be saved. And Father, for believers who are trapped in patterns of sin, or who are listening to the voice of the devil in their mind and embracing condemnation and pain and judgment all the time, I pray that you would encourage them in this, that if they cry out, who will deliver me? The answer is always the same. It is always yes, and it is always I will deliver through Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, keep us humble, willing to make apologies, willing to second-guess our efforts and our energy and all of our own goodness. Keep us confident in you and keep us looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.